Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello, beloved listeners. We are here for Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Talents, Chapter 7. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And we're excited to be bringing you this content every single week. Um, Toshi, do you have any announcements this week? You know, look for music, music, music. That's the, that's the announcement. Music is out there. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Music is out there. Music is out there all over the place. I'm trying to think if I have any announcements. I think. I think I'll just keep uplifting, you know, Holding Change is coming, which is uh, my next book. It's on emergent strategy facilitation and mediation. And this past week, I found out through social media (laughs) that my publisher created a little notebook to go with it. I saw that. Gorgeous. um, Yeah. (laughs) I I did not know that it was going to have that impact on me that I was like, what I needed was a notebook um, to go with a book. So for people who pre-order through a series of the local bookstores that have been major supporters over the years, we'll get the notebook. Uh, but they also said if you just reach out to them, you might be able to get a notebook too. <laughs> so um, so that's my announcement is, is keep an eye out for holding change, especially if you are a facilitator or mediator or want to be. Um, it's myself and a bunch of other Black feminists talking about how we do this. So here we are, chapter seven. Uh, Will you bring us in? Yeah, Yeah. The child in each of us knows paradise. Paradise is home. Home as it was, or home as it should have been. Paradise is one's own place, one's own people, one's own world, knowing and known, perhaps even loving and loved. Yet, every child is cast from paradise into growth and destruction, into solitude and new community, into vast, ongoing change. Earth see the books of the living. Oh. We could just do that. <laughs> I like, we could spend some time there. We could just do that. We could spend a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, this chapter is so, is so, so big and so powerful yeah. and so much. And, um, and I guess it's, it's, you know, it's, it's Marcus's, is Marcus's chapter in a big way, but Marcus is yeah. going Mark, Marcos Duran. And, um, and basically, uh, there's this kind of look at the, the two of them. You have Lauren with Earthseed and Marcos with Christianity and Lauren, Ursi, Chaos, Mar- Marcos, Christianity, and Order. And so that's, yes. that's kind of the, the framework of, of what's going on. And, you know, it's a lot of him explaining his life where when he was a kid and they were living in their, their world, their walled off neighborhood, that was the whole world to him. He just didn't know anything. And, um, the way that Keith's murder affected him. He really knew that Keith was not a great person, but he could not 
reason with the way Keith was killed. And um, and that's from the earlier book, Parable of the Sower, for folks who are just jumping in. Um, so he is he is dealing with a lot of these these memories and so we hear from Lauren's child and uh, they are talking about Uncle Mark and how handsome a man he is and how they fell in love with him, but also were afraid of him. And um, drawing this line around their grandfather being a preacher, being a Baptist minister, and the, the experience with um, Lauren not doing that. Lauren, a little adult at 15 and a survivor of the destruction of her whole neighborhood, like Uncle Mark, needed to take charge. And so there is obviously a, a Uncle Mark story coming up in the future that we don't know about yet. Um, yeah. But it is from Lauren's child that we get that look at the two of them, that we see that Lauren needs to take charge and that Lauren sees chaos as a natural, inevitable, and as clay to be shaped and directed, and even says, chaos is God's most dangerous face, amorphous, roiling, hungry, shape, shape chaos, shape God, act. Alter the speed or the direction of change, vary the scope of change, recombine the seeds of change, transmute the impact of change, seize change, use it, adapt, and grow. Um, chaos they go on to say, whatever my mother's reasoning, she decided that she knew what was wrong with the world and she knew what would fix it. Earth seed. Earth seed. <laughs> the child is still not feeling earth seed. Um, not feeling mm -mm. Uncle Mark, on the other hand, hated chaos. Um, it was unnatural and it was demonic. He hated what it had done to him. Uh, no Christian minister could ever hate sin as much as Mark hated chaos. His gods were order, stability, safety, control. He was a man with a wound that would not heal until he could be certain that what had happened to him could not happen to anyone ever. So we get to the journals of Lauren Oya Alamina. It is Saturday, December the 18th. It's 2032. And uh, Dan has still is still gone. Um, he hasn't come back. And we just pick up where Marcus, that's what Lauren is calling him. Marcus has just spent the first night at Acorn and he's headed to the, to their, uh, compostable toilets. So they are here for the environment. And, uh, yes. And he gets to sit down and get fed acorn bread. And it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. He says it reminds him of, of the bread that um, Corey, his mother, used to make. Uh, and then this is where the remembering starts to happen. Like, what is the journey? Like, what happened to them? And it is a rough story. It is a very, very rough story. I won't say all the things because it's also very, very detailed. Um, but it is, it is that checking in on, on who is alive and who died and when and how. And Marcus is looking for a particular Balter, Balter girl. And Lawrence like, she's dead. And he's like, are you sure I'm here? Maybe. And no, she's dead. I saw her. And is telling him uh -huh. that he, um, that Harry Balter has married Sarah and he remembers Sarah. It's that kind of catch up. Um, and 
Then he starts to talk about this collar and the collar is just one of the most horrific things I've ever like heard of made up or anything. It's just such an incredibly harmful tool. So we get to go, we get to go more into it, but he confirms that the rest of the family is dead and that he saw them and, um, that there is a kind of a little disaster or a big disaster in this community, um, not too far away called Halstead. And Halstead is like, you know, on the cliffs of the Pacific ocean and it's beautiful. And it's like the people with a little bit more money, like they have houses and they have, um, different kinds of houses. And so everybody who built their house kind of on the edge of the cliff, they're in trouble. Every time it rains, the earth gets soft and the houses fall into the ocean. And so a house has fallen into the, the ocean and they come for Bancole to come and help because the doctor was in one of the houses delivering a baby and and they don't and Can you imagine? I can't. <laughs> Um, I, I can't. And Van Coley's just, he's, he's totally, um, he's totally furious. Like, why do y'all still have people living on the cliffs? But we know people living on the cliffs right now and they, you know. Exactly. That's one of my questions. <laughs> I know you just have that. <laughs> I know you have that. So he's going off, you know, he's packing up his stuff to go help, of course. But, in, but everybody going to hear from Van Coley what he thinks about that. Yeah. So they are really you know, as Octavia does, something is going towards the future and something is, is, is re-looking at the past. And, um, so Lauren and and Marcus have a time where they can talk about like the whole thing about when she had to buy him from the trader and he recognized her right away and he had to turn away. So he didn't show that he could recognize her and they go through, Mm. they go through all of this and she gets to learn about the horrible life that he's lived and and in in some ways he goes through this whole situation he survives um the burning and destruction of his community by being picked up by this um by being picked up by this couple and they're basically scavengers yeah. they they have a truck full of yeah. stuff they scavenged the neighborhood and they saw him alive and they picked him up and they did their best to heal him and eventually that becomes his family and that's where he gets the yeah. name um, Durant from, from these this couple. That's right. And this couple had a daughter and their daughter got taken from them. So he he um, spends about four years with these folks. And it, and when I say like it's a really detailed story, it is. Um, we could do like three episodes out of this one chapter. Just in this. Yeah. And yeah. it's immense. It's like his parable of the sower. It's you know? it, that's yes, that's that's perfect. That it is, it is his his parable of the sower. And um, one part of it is that they were like they lost track of Lauren, but all of them were together. And basically, the onslaught was just too much. It was somebody trying to still take Ben, his younger brother, away. You know, somebody doing this, somebody doing that, them trying to gather up, get going, get going, get going. And eventually they just get overwhelmed. Corey gets shot. Um, Gregory gets shot. And then they all get thrown into a fire, um, into the Balter's house on fire. And he is the one that could actually run out of the house. Like he was still, and he runs out of the house and he wishes that he he was dead. So 
he <sighs> he spends um he spends these years with these with these folks and he um they're kind of squatting but they have like a a community and they're 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 functioning and he starts to preach the word and gets a little following mm-hmm. and it's not an easy life at all but they're they're poor and just figuring it out and then the mayor of the town decides that it's time for a change and that they need to like invest in in the town again and the first thing of course they want to do is kick out everybody that's squatting or everybody that's yep. occupying um any kind of space that isn't like they need papers, they need receipts, they need all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And uh they start to clean out the town. And this is so interesting cuz uh they also need if you need to have your paperwork. First of all, people most of the people can't write or read, so He's kind of helping people write receipts and write, do things and, and trying to support, but it's not working because they basically own, the town owns so many of the buildings, they know who was there and who wasn't. So they just, they just start to sweep people out. Um, there's a big riot. There's a big fight. There's everything. And lots of people get killed. And, and then he's just, he's just on his own again. And. I called this, I wrote on this page, on, on, on page 124, I wrote how I got over because it's just, okay. <laughs> it's just like, is there no mercy in the yeah. land? How did I get over? So he is, he's, he's trying it again. And basically he did make real community community and people come back and kind of say to him, Hey, like, come be with us. Like, we don't have a lot, but yeah. we're going to be together. And he decides, you know, I'm going to try to find something else. And he does he does what Lauren and Harry and Sarah did, but he's by himself. Um, yeah. And he starts to, you know, he starts to take his space and go up the highway. And he immediately is jumped by some people. And he's abused continuously. And then he's sold to other people and sold to other people and sold to other people until he is with Cougar and Lauren finds him. I didn't tell a lot of detail about this. There's a lot of stories to say. So when you read this chapter, drink water because it is very hard. And, but there's more. So he, he ends up kind of having a conversation with Lauren about Acorn. Like, you know, whose land is it? Who owns it? And especially after the experience that he's had. And she is like, you know, this is Bancoli's land. And he's like, but it's yours. It's your place. And, you know, she's like, it's our place. And she's like, I've shaped it, but it doesn't belong to me. And I've invited people to come here and build lives for themselves to join us. And she starts to wondering, like, you know, where is he on this religion spectrum? Like, he he's already kind of seems like he has some very strong you know, strong things about it. And when she starts to talk about like what she believes, he's kind of like, are you a preacher? You know, like, are you, (laughs) Yeah. he gets a little excited about that. And Lauren says, no, I'm a shaper. And we call our system Earthseed. And, you know, and he is like, wait, Earthseed? What? You know, we done heard about that. And Lauren's shocked, but. I was shocked. (laughs) 
I love that. Yeah. He was like, oh, no, we heard about y'all. Y'all, you know, y'all are out there. Like, y'all are, you know, he's just like, so basically the the Jarrett, the new president, you know, his people have been going around talking about these cults and things. And Earthseed is one of the the places they talk about the reli- the other religions, the devil religions. Um, and so, yeah, he was making a speech in Arcata when I was up there, and he was list he was he was listing devil worship cults. He named Earthseed as one of them. I'd never heard of it, but I remember because he was going on about how the name actually referred to the devil, the seed deep in the earth, and the growing like a poisonous fungus that spread its evil to more and more people. And and Lawrence just like, wait, what? You know, and Lawrence so chill. She's like, wow, they done heard about us. (laughs) (laughs) So you know my name. So So you you know know my name. Okay, Okay, cool. But it's, it actually is, is very um, deep because he is not here for, for anything but some Jarrett Christianity. Not like yeah. Christianity, but Jared Christianity. And and he challenges he challenges her. Then did you make up Earth Earthsea? Did you make up your seat up? The same way you would have made up a novel or you know, he's doing that and they're going back and forth. You know, I wonder if you have a question about this. I don't know if you do. But <laughs> but what is what is the word basically? And can can you create from yourself what the word is and then it's like but it's like no but the bible was made up too okay all right never mind (laughs) okay (laughs) so um this is going they're going back and forth about this and um but you but what's really incredible about this chapter is just you really get a perspective on the early life of of um lauren um from someone else's view and um so he's talking about how much um, their mother loved loved Keith. And she's like, it's not that bad. And he was like, it was terrible. Like, that was your stepmom. That was my mother. She loved him more than anybody. And that was hard. Um, she tries to lay the Earthseed first book on him. And he's not here for it. Whatever he read, uh, she says, he seemed to, to stare the way blind people do unseeing and blank. I'm not sure about that that sentence, but I think what she's trying to say is he just could not take it in. He was yeah. he was like, no, that's not okay. Yeah, it's not a sentence that would work now. No, uh, that is not a sentence that would work now. Um, there's a few of those in this book, so I think Octavia struggled with that a little bit. You know, just uh, of the time, you know, that it's just like there was not that awareness of disability and how language around disability lands um and divides and like assumes yeah you know assumes like a a lack of being able to comprehend or whatever is happening in there yeah um so it's one of the things i'm like "Hmm, we'll sit down and talk about that yeah someday it it, it definitely (laughs) it definitely pops up in here and there Mm -hmm. um so he has been through a lot and he comes out of it very very determined but there is there is this horrific horrific journey he's had as being an enslaved person and being sold um, and being continuously violated. And, um, and the, and the way that he describes the collars that they basically, you, you're helpless once one is put on you. You can't, you can't go anywhere. 
you can't move against it. Any, any moving against it in any way results in you being choked. And even if you and your gang of people get together and like, be like, okay, we're going to do this all at one time, or we're going to stagger, you have to have a fingerprint of the only person who can do it. And they have to be alive. So you can't kill the person and cut off their finger. Like it is just some crazy technology that, you know, I was like, we are so close to this collar. Like, you know, the it's, thing yeah, of fingerprinting. Like, it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. So he he uh, he went through that and he's like, you, you will do anything to be in right relationship with the collar and the person who owns the collar. It is, mm-hmm. it is not, um, it is not okay. There was a, a woman who tried to uprise against um, being enslaved and they basically burned her and then forced everybody to participate in that. So it is all bad. And yet he is alive and he is with his sister and he is eating acorn bread and he is at his next opportunity. The chapter ends with Bancole on his Let's Move mission. He has returned from Halstead. He helped the people and they were like, we love you. You are awesome. And we can hook you up. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) he, he really, 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 really wants to go. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And he is, he is determined um, to, Mm -hmm. to get them out of Acorn. Yeah, it says you can hear that fathering, fathering stuff kicking in, right? Like this, y'all need to be safe now. Yeah, this is a different thing. It's also like the elevation, like when you're walking on a highway, you're like, if only I could just be on this. If only we could rest for three days in the same place and not feel like we get attacked. Like, and it's so hard to do that. Oh, if only we could sleep under any kind of shelter. You know, if yes. if only we had access to like water and food and not have to worry. Like it's it's like and then you get to the place where it's like, no, you can be here. You have access to water and food. Yes. You have a community. You're not by yourself. We you know, and it's not enough. You know, it's not enough because of the the way that the world is is in its constant cycle of evolution until the the people who are, you know, basically running the country shift dramatically away from, you know, violation and violence and all of the other chaos that they're causing, you you build, really can't imagine just settling down someplace for a long period of time. You know, so it's it's very interesting this um this conversation about should we stay, should we go? Yeah. I love I love your summary of this extremely dense chapter. Thank you, Toshi. Um, and I have questions. <laughs> so um, I love how this chapter goes full circle, right? Mm-hmm. That it's like you start out with Marcus's reflections on feeling like he grew up in a cage. And then you come all the way around to like, are we safe? Should we go to this place that might be safe? Like, where is safe when we're trying to think about raising a child? Mm-hmm. And there's just a, to me, the arc of that is really masterful on Octavia's part. And so my first question is, how do you know the difference between safety and a cage? Mm-hmm. Like, 
how would you, how do you make the distinctions between those two things? And I think it's interesting to, to look at like how it felt, how it felt and feels to be a parent making that choice versus how it felt and feels to be a teenager trying to figure out that choice or that distinction. Mm -hmm. And then where do you fall on the spectrum from chaos to control? Mm. Right. Like which of those are you on one end or the other in terms of what feels more comfortable or more familiar to you and which one you create? Like, are you the kind of person who comes into spaces and deconstructs and moves towards chaos or the person who comes in and kind of recreates and is looking for order uh, and which one feels more comfortable. And if you identify as someone who has, has trauma, like trauma that you can mark or trace, would you trace a relationship from that trauma to where you land on that spectrum? Because there's so much about, you know, how Lauren's child is perceiving these two adults and what happened in their lives that is like, oh, this stuff happened to them. And then they both mm-hmm. needed control mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. feel safe moving forward. And I, I see that often in people that it's like the chaotic, disordered childhood or teenage years end up with a, a hyper rigid and, and often very armored adult space, mm-hmm. heart, body, in life. Mm. So I'd love to invite people to reflect on that for themselves and in groups. Yeah. You got something? Yeah. I think I, I think I just think it's a great, it's a great question. I'm sitting here thinking about myself. (laughs) Yeah. Where do you have a sense of where you fall on that? I think I, I think I have access to both of them, you know? Yeah. I think I do because I don't, I don't think I, I don't feel like I'm extreme in either way, but it, it's almost like, well, I have a utility belt and on this utility belt is, you know, this, this, this organized, yes. this, this chaos, this, you know, um, well, let's just go outside and avoid the whole thing altogether. <laughs> I have that on my belt yes. as well. So, you know, I, I think, I think I, I have, I have access to both. Yeah. I, I feel similarly like when I, when I was writing this question, I was thinking of, have you ever watched a, a windsurfer mm-hmm. on the water mm-hmm. and how it's like you're, you're moving, you know, if the wind is, is driving you to the right, you're pulling your whole weight the other direction mm. and then creating the balance that keeps you upright and then vice versa. I feel so, sort of like I've moved my life like that. Like if I'm in a space where order is way too prevalent and you can't feel the natural impulse, then I feel myself, you know, pulling towards the chaos or the like, we made all this stuff up, (laughs) you know, like everything here is made up. We can change the rules whenever we want to. Mm -hmm. But then if I'm, if I'm in a space where the chaos is kind of more prevalent, then I can be like, there is a simple order here. Let's just, you know, create a structure of time or create a structure of, of some agreements or, um, or spatial, you know, like I'm a Virgo. So spatial structures, like, you know, that order will emerge. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and although I have to say, it's been very funny. Like when I've been in spaces where I was like that teacher, the teacher who produces order self was needed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really like, whereas as a participant in things, I tend to be more like, well, I think a chaotic question might be useful, you know? So it depends, mm. it depends. But, and I think most people are kind of in that. That's why I was like, it's really a spectrum. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm really curious about where where people fall, especially people who are reading Octavia mm-hmm. and thinking about Octavia. I'm like, are you thinking? Are you reading her because you're interested more in the chaotic, or because you're interested more in how to create order out of what's coming? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and these next two questions are also related to that small section from Lauren's Child, which is, do you consider yourself a world fixer? Mm-hmm. Like, are you someone who's here trying to attend to fix, even shape, change something about the world? Um, and then are there other world fixers in your family of origin? So I found this so fascinating, this idea that both Marcus and Lauren were world fixers by the time Lauren's child is telling this story. And if the people in your family are not world fixers, what would you call them? Mm. <laughs> right? Because my binary thinking is like, so are they the world messers? Like, what, you know, are they the world floaters by? Like, I, you know, I'm just sort of like, oh, how do I non-judgmentally speak about those who are not actively shaping yeah. the world? So I would love to hear how people think about that. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I think, you know, my grandmother, I don't think she would call herself a world a world fixer. But she, she like... She put her hands on everybody in the family. I mean, it was like, yes. like, but she would never use that language. She's, she would be like, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, like she, she's, she knew what she was supposed to do. You're supposed to take care of your children. Then you, and then yes. that is like the food and everything. So she had the garden and da, da, da. And then you um, take care of the grandbabies, you know, yeah. and then, you know, you do, you know, you do this, you do that. You go to church and you know i mean she held up held up so much but she would she would be like no you do this is the, your part you do and this is just what it means to be a responsible is, human yeah, being this is what it means <laughs> to be alive and be like a participant in your community and you know yes i don't think she ever said this but i did get the feeling about her sometimes that you know beatrice wise johnson didn't think so much about this the hugeness of the world as much as like the world that was right in front of her and right that needed a particular tending right right in front of her and that that occupied yes. all her time and space I and mean, she worked very 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 hard yeah. so you know um yeah. almost like you know on a mission i feel like there's a, that's a collective energy that was world yes. changing that a lot of our our people our ancestors participated in but it's it was so direct so it wasn't even like, I can think, you know, that if more people, would, you know, yes. then, you know, good, but very specific, very to the point, very, very much, um, you know, what's the word for, for someone who is relentless at love and the mm-hmm. way that they occupy it is by taking good care of each generation yeah. that comes before them until they died. Oh, Toshi. <laughs> I mean, I love this also because, you know, as someone who thinks globally and thinks about responsibility and accountability and all these things, I, I would find if someone called me a world fixer, I think I would be offended by it, <laughs> you know, but I think because I'm like, the world is not broken. You know, the fixing implies a brokenness that needs to be that I would somehow know an answer to making it all right function or right. But I do think of myself as a shaper. Mm-hmm. And I do think I come from a lineage of people who shaped the world that they they had the capacity to be aware of. 
So right now I'm like, oh, I live in an era of global knowing. Like it's not unusual for me in a given day to learn about things happening Mm. in any part of the globe, in any part of the world. Uh, But my grandfather, he shaped the world, but he, he was like a, you know, Christian evangelical um, man. So his shaping was like, I need to get all the people that are within hand's reach to Jesus. Yeah. That is my job. That is my work. Yeah, and that means I have to be a nice person and help other people be kind. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, so I feel that, you know, that's like, oh, for his time. Um, I mean, he was a grandiose figure mm. in my life and the lives of everyone he touched. Like you would not come into his world and and think this is a small slice of anything. Right. It felt like you know he's paying attention, but yeah, I'm really curious for people now, like that we have a different level of professionalization, mm-hmm. a different level of titles and named movements in a certain way while we're in them. You know, I think that's also thing. It used to be like a movement gets kind of named after it's happened. You know, after something has been going on. Yeah. Now it's like, we are are declaring ourselves a movement. Yep. We're in this. We are fixing this, you know. Um, so all of those questions, I'd be really curious to hear. And well, just while we're here, actually, something my sister Autumn and I are working on this, this season for how to survive the end of the world is we're only talking to siblings, other oh. siblings who are both in movement space in some way. Mm. So we just talked to Leah and Naima Penniman. Uh-huh. And delight, Amazing. delightful conversation. So and then we have a ton of them. We're going to be talking to Makani and Robin. Um, I'm just like very excited about it. But it is that, oh, what does it mean once you identify that within one blood family, there's multiple people who are who are like, I'm shaping, mm-hmm. we're shaping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is now the question, you know, these houses are falling into the sea which is very present day. <laughs> there are places now, right now, where this kind of impact is already happening. There are roadways. Um, I was just looking at how the Pacific Coast Highway, Highway 1, which is one of the most beautiful drives uh, I've ever been on in my life, each time I went on it. But a huge section of it has fallen into the sea. Mm. And um, so that that's happening. But then also... You know, people live in hurricane zones, people live in wildfire zones, people live in in places where there's this high level of structural precarity. And so that's a question for you to reflect on is do you or others you know live in a high level of structural precarity, right? Where the conditions at any moment could change in a way that could affect your your being able to call this a home, being able to stay in that place, you're being able to survive mm-hmm. sleeping in that place for the night. And how do you organize yourself around that? So I have friends who are just like, New Orleans, hurricane season, it's a thing. And you just, they, they it's kind of like riding an energetic wave, right? Like there's so much intuition. There's so much gut feeling about, well, here's what they're saying. And here's what I know. And here's what I've experienced. And here's how I'm going to move this time. But I get so curious about, you know, I've watched people now lose homes to the wildfires in California and I'm just really curious about how how you stay centered in it, how you live your life in that precarity, what keeps you there. Yeah. That's such a good yeah. question and and cuz at that I was thinking when this is happening in the book, I'm like god, it's happened so much already here. And um Uh-huh. It's also like 
the whole adventure risk taking part of it that is so interesting. It's almost like you don't believe it, it it's going to happen. So you you're like, you know, even when the when the they're like, nope, all these houses burned down in in this area, and then there's just such a disconnect between, you know, what is yes. what is really what is really happening, and then what you what somebody wants to happen, and you know, so somebody <laughs> yes. wants, you know, all these houses to be here and wants all of this to happen, but like, uh, there's even like laws where you can't tell the truth about what's happening with the water in different states around the country. Like you'll get in trouble if you, if you say what the real reality of the situation is. And there's all, it, there's excess. There's just so much excess in, in the, the planning of something. So, you know, it can't be, it can't be a small thing. It has to be as gigantic as possible and as risky as possible. And, and New York, um, you know, there's there's buildings being built everywhere in Brooklyn. It just it pop. I keep thinking, I'm like, yes. what, where are they? Come, where is the room? And they keep finding. And in New, in Manhattan, up. yeah, you'll just see that the skyline. The skyline's so weird. It, it's not even beautiful buildings, but like the tallest buildings. And that that building, that's the tallest building in New York. Um, that is the most expensive building. Uh, all the people who bought apartments are complaining because it's sinking somehow. It has all of these problems. I don't think anybody's building anything well. And um, right. it's just so interesting. Like what? And it's like disconcerting to be that high up. I've oh. read a lot about people really struggling to sleep and to feel at home above the cloud line. Like yeah, just having unexpected because you don't yeah, like, you don't um, live there there's there's um countries where you know people live and they live in mountains and things and they see the clouds they wake up in the morning and they're surrounded yes. by clouds and but that's not new york city like, it's like you are not supposed to be above the clouds like what are you doing no yeah that's not you know that that is that the is, body knows the body knows i have a hard time staying in uh california for more than two weeks at a time i have to leave oh, yeah. I have to leave the state and come back <laughs> if I'm doing a lot of work there. It, it just my I literally start to be like I'm in the wrong place and I want to run out of houses. I don't know what that is, but I uh, Wow. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to it's just like that that's what I mean about that structural precarity, that kind of like how does it work? Because I this we're off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I remember that after September eleventh for me in New York, I had this like, I can't sleep here now. Like Mm. something something really shifted where I was like, I've always known theoretically that this is a high targeted area that like if people have reason to be angry with the country, justifiable reason to be angry with the country, that New York will be one of the places where they that gets expressed. Right. And I always had that sense. I was like, oh, I, I can't do it anymore. And, and But I stayed for several years more, mm. right? I stayed for several years after I had that feeling in my gut. And... And I lived in the interstitial space where I was like, I have this fear on one side and then I love this place and like what it offers on the other. And I often feel that way when I'm in New Orleans where I'm like, okay, I know it's like hurricane season and there's like these, you know, there's this threat that's present, but there's also nothing in the world like this place and what it feels like culturally, architecturally, like socially. Mm -hmm. It's just like such a, such a vibrant and distinct place um 
but I'm like, is Halstead like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what keeps us in these places, right? And and how do we recognize, I think there's a love, there's an earth love inside of something there. So it's so it's so interesting. Yeah. When I when yeah. I was in um in uh, Durham Chapel Hill and one of the hurricanes. You I know, I'm moving there. We need to talk. <laughs> we need to talk. We got to we'll talk after okay. this. <laughs> we need to talk. Okay. Yay. Okay. <laughs> but I was there, um, was it last year or the year before? I can't remember. But I just remember that there was like one of the hurricanes was hovering and it, they had just been one the like a, a week or a couple of weeks ago. And then I get there and I've been trying to avoid being in a tornado for all my life. And yes. so wisely. <laughs> um, yes. And then I'm having lunch with Katina Parker, um, a yes. filmmaker, a fabulous. And um, and then everybody's phones start like going. And then, um, the person who's working with me is like, where are you? And can you leave? And luckily Katina had a, um, a, a Range Rover or one of those cars that's like high because she drove me back to, to, uh, Chapel Hill to my hotel and had no problem. But there were lots of the roads had those not deep floods, yes. but floods like regular cars were going to maybe get stuck. And I'm in my hotel and the lights are flickering. There was no tornado, but just like, it was just like a, like a little bit of time of just ridiculous rain and wind and thunder yes. and lightning it was crazy. And then afterwards, all of these trees were down and just yes. like really hundreds of years old, like trees. And then it was the next day and the sun was shining and people were cutting down the trees. And it's so, interesting our ability to like kind of be like okay well let's go <laughs> like move on from something that is just it, I I was like a little traumatized I was like oh my god do you all do yeah. this all the time like how do you <laughs> yes and people get used to it and yeah. like I think what's interesting is in each place people are making that trade-off uh you know in each place people are like oh you know I know people in California who I'm like you're living with the wildfires and the smog and like the this and the that and they're like yes but when I lived in New York, you know, they're like, but you're living in New York, like, yeah. where all the other, you know, it's just different trade-offs. It's different trade-offs, and yeah. So, yeah. So, my next one, my next question is, Earthseed making it into the news, Earthseed making it into the president's mouth, it was such a shocker for me. You know, I'm still, like, with Lauren, with, like, she's walking and she's told, like, these 16 people now or something, you know, and it's just, mm -hmm. like, the idea that it's, like, oh, it's this devil cult or whatever. It was fascinating to me. And it made me want to ask the question of how do you measure the scale of your impact? Mm. How do you measure the scale of your impact? Like, when do you know, you know, that you're being seen, being felt, um, having impact? And in this period of social media, I think it can be very confusing because it makes it feel like you can actually tangibly count or tangibly measure your impact based off of something that's happening online there rather than, you know, people understand it's like what happens on social media is a measurement of how active you are on social media more than it is how impactful you are necessarily in the world outside of social media. Mm. And there's exceptions to that with like hyper celebrities who are just followed no matter what they do. But for the most part, people who are like building up a following in that space, that doesn't necessarily mean they're having a big impact in the world. It might. And I know I get really interested when I hear Someone say, here's a tangible way that I I went, like you said this, and I went and read Octavia Butler and I have a go bag ready now. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I read Emergent Strategy and then this 
happen the next time we had a hurricane or right. There's like these tangible ways, right? But there's certain mouths I never expect to be in. <laughs> there's certain, you know, attentions that I never expect to garner um, at the scale that I'm operating at. And I think what's so fascinating in this is like, oh, this enclave of acorn, which as far as we know, it is basically like off any grid with these people who don't have any, you know, they get disc to receive the news. Right. And yet somehow someone is talking about them so much so that it made it all the way to this, to this president. Right. So it makes me really curious about that for us now. And for, as we move into futures where technology and communication absolutely will change, how do you know that you've made an impact? Sometimes the people who are critiquing us are one of the best ways we can tell we're having an impact, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, um, yeah. you're looking at me and I'm not looking at you. Like, what is that? Yeah. What, how do you talk about that kind of impact or whatever? That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, I think in the book, I, when that happened, I was like really wanting Lauren to put some pieces together, you know, because yes. I really wanted her to, to have a stronger reaction to that because I was like, like you need a safety plan. Lauren. Yeah. You're not, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's a little bit like, but you're, why don't you, why isn't that ringing a bell for you? Like, why aren't you alarmed by that? Because you know who you are and like, and if somebody's using you in this way, why doesn't that trigger you to think, oh, they're looking at us? Like, it's not yes. some random person preaching. It's, it's exactly like somebody is, somebody is actually knows who you are and knows where you are. And yeah. I'm like, I, I wanted her to be like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> oh my, like, we need to have a meeting, you know, like yeah. they're talking about us. What does that mean? Um, yes, I, w- I was yes. looking for some something like that in in that story. <laughs> like if I could time travel through fiction, yeah, that would be the contribution. That would, would be the contribution I would space. make. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna put it in an opera. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, please, fan fiction. Yes, so, yeah. um, so the next questions I have are: I just want to give a heads up. We're moving into trauma, trauma space, trauma categories, and. And, you know, you can choose to engage with these questions. You can also skip ahead a couple of moments if you're like, I don't really want to go there right now for myself. But looking at how what happens for Lauren versus what happens for Marcus in that immediate period of Robledo falling mm-hmm. and what happened in the interim and how Lauren had the traumatic experiences we read um, that she went through. But it's vastly different mm-hmm. from what happened to her brother. And yes. Um, that he was experiencing slavery during the time that she was growing community and finding relationship to land. So my question is, how do we relate across vastly different traumatic experiences? Mm-hmm. And most of us have to all the time. We're trying to build relationship and build community and build movement across vastly different experiences of trauma, which sometimes are visible. Sometimes we can be like, oh, you, you know, in in her case, it's like you were wearing a collar and I see, I know that you were enslaved and I can infer things from that in addition to what you're telling me. But a lot of times we're talking across instances of trauma where we can't necessarily see what happened. It's like, if someone chooses to tell us, we know, Mm. how do we learn? How do we be 
in authentic relationship across those vast and different experiences. And then my second question around this is trauma often pushes us into isolation. And, you know, what we saw, I think, with Marcus is that, you know, he got put, he got his family stripped away from him. And then he found another kind of like chosen family, chosen space accidental family space. And then that was also stripped away. And so he moves into isolation. He's like, I'm going to do it by myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to put myself back into relationship again. And that becomes the most dangerous decision that he makes for his life up till that, that point that we meet him again. Yeah. Um, So reflect on what you've learned about the dangers of making individual moves under pressure or in crisis. Mm -hmm. And You know, as they're talking about faith, faith differences, what they believe in, how do we know what word to believe? Whose words matter to us, right? Do they have to be ancient words for us to take them seriously? Are we ready for new divine offerings? You know, I I definitely feel like I'm like, if I'm holding the Bible in one hand and undrowned by Alexis Pauline Gums in another, (laughs) I just like, these are both sacred texts. Um, it really depends on on when you're born as to how you'll relate to them, right? But how do we trust the observations? Lauren says, I didn't make earth seed up. I observed what was happening. And I see that in so many belief systems that people are like, if you pay attention, then you'll see that this is what is, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we decide whose observations we want to trust? Isn't it also final set? Oh yeah. I'm just is how the word is said, I think, you know, because I think that's a part of this story, which is like it's said um, so many times in Marcus's beautiful and, yes. and not just beautiful, but like one of the most beautiful people that anybody's ever seen. Yes. So he had said so many times. And I think part of, of um, you know, the success in his preaching is had to do with what he was saying, but also who he was when he was saying it. And, you know, this must be my grandmother's episode, but my grandmother always <laughs> was talking about preacher, pretty preachers who would come in and, and think, oh, cause yeah. they got green eyes that they preach in the word. <laughs> and she'd be like, he not yes. preaching the word. You know, he's just good looking. Yes. Um, you know, so. Yeah. And, and then those also. Politics of attraction, mm-hmm. those politics of aesthetic privilege. Like that stuff is so real. Yeah. Somebody could be saying the most important thing and not, have the greatest delivery, you know, talk too slow, don't have a look that you want to pay attention to, but it could be the deepest wisdom and you will fall asleep in that class because, you know, they don't know how to <laughs> project well or yes. something. You know, it's, it, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's such an interesting moment. Like, I feel like we're in a very fascinating moment right now where people who normally get overlooked or unheard are getting centered more and more often or people are like listening, Mm -hmm. but our sense of self hasn't necessarily caught up to that. So, you know, for most of my life being fat meant I was largely invisible as a voice, as a presence, as a object of attraction, as anything. But now it's like this renaissance. Everyone's like, fat is everything. And it's on every cover and it's all our matters are like plus size. And like, you know, it's just the culture is shifting. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, oh, can I relinquish feeling like an invisible person? Mm. Because that shaping has been there for so long. Again, can I measure that my impact is actually different than what I was internally socialized to experience? And 
Um, and then can I trust my own word? <laughs> can I trust my own observations uh, outside of that shaping? Mm. Which maybe is related to this next piece. Um, you know, the collar is such a tangible torture device. And I think that it is representative of so many devices that keep us captive and keep us from feeling like we can speak up or move or build community. So I would ask you, and this is also a good conversation to have with community, with other people that you're building with, is what are the current collars that keep us captive, unable to move, unable to practice agency? Mm. What basically literally is trying to choke us and quiet us and, and keep us in, in our place? Or even worse, make you think like you need to hold a specific boundary or you or you will choke. Yes. So you're just trying to keep a, a boundary that will keep you safe yes. continuously. Like there's that line in there where it's like Marcus, I think, says that. He's like, you would do anything. Mm-hmm. You do anything that the person who is holding that the control to that collar asked of you or to keep them happy, to keep them calm. And I feel that's such a huge presence yeah. <laughs> in in the world right now. It's like there's so there's such a sense of like, oh, I would I would do anything to avoid upsetting or disrupting people, certain people for what? For why? You know, I'm asking this question, trying to interrogate it all the time. Like who's benefiting from all that silence mm-hmm. and that repressed truth and that that uh, repressed aliveness. Uh, final questions. Would you go to Halstead? Would that actually feel safer to you if you were in Lauren's shoes, Lauren and Bancoli's shoes? And finally, what is your parable? Right? So, you know, Lauren has her parable of what happened. Marcus has his parable. We're also living in apocalyptic times. If you just looked at this past year, right, from... March of 2020 to March of 2021, what is your parable? How did you survive it, right? If we're in the parable, right? What is ahead of you? So those are the questions we have for today. Wait, would you go to Halstead? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I I was like, why would I go fall into the sea with a bunch of people? Um, But I I think if I was, so this is, I was like, I think I would stay at Acorn. I would want to stay at Acorn. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would want a security upgrade at Acorn. Like mm-hmm. I would want to really think about security there. But I also was like, if it was my sibling and they were pregnant, I would want them to go to Halstead. So it was a, it was a, I was like, oh, dang. Mm-hmm. And I'm often that way. I'm often like, I can make safer choices for other people than I can for myself. What mm-hmm. about you? Would you go to Halstead? I mean, I was thinking about it because I think I would rather live in Halstead, not near the water, but one of the other houses. Uh, no, obviously. But those people water. seem dangerous to me. Yes. They seem dangerous to me. Like they have their town and they seem very invested in their town, staying their town in a certain kind of way. So like all of the infrastructure issues, I I think I they would make me nervous. I would want to come yeah. in with a lot of people. Like, and then I think that would, I would just get in trouble. Yeah. I said, no, I don't want one house. (laughs) I need five houses or I need our people to be able to stay because I I feel like they, they want you, but they want you for a very specific thing in a very specific way. They're not saying welcome neighbors come here. And welcome community. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the piece for me where I'm like, I think I would have to stay at Acorn because I'm part of a whole community here. And 
the doctor is a part of this community yeah. <laughs> and serving this community. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Octavia's Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Adrian Marie Brown. We are produced by Kat Aaron with help from Kenzie Clark. And our show art is by Krista Franklin. Always See the Stars is written and performed by Toshi Regan. And Goddess Change is written by Toshi Regan and performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at O Parables. Sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash O Parables. And um, just as a reminder, you can find all the episode transcripts and all the information about us at readingoctavia.com. Yay. Yay. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change.